Chapter 10 of Syria, the Desert, and the Sown. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melinda Cumming. Syria, the Desert, and the Sown by Gertrude Bell. Chapter 10 you do not see Chama until you are actually upon it. There is no other preposition that describes the attitude of the newcomer. The Orontes at this point flows in a deep bed, and the whole city lies hidden between the banks. The monotonous plains of cornfields stretches before you without a break until you reach a veritable entanglement of graveyards. The weekly All Souls Day had come round again when we arrived, and the cemeteries were crowded with the living, as well as with the dead. Suddenly the plain ceased beneath our feet, and we stood on the edge of an escarpment, with the whole town spread out before us. The Orontes set with gigantic Persian wheels, and beyond it the conical mound on which stood the fortresses of Hamath and Epiphania, and who knows what besides, for the site is one of the oldest in the world." Two soldiers started from the earth and set about to direct me to a camping ground, but I was tired and cross, a state of mind that does sometimes occur on a journey, and the arid spots between houses to which they took us seemed particularly distasteful. At length, the excellent Turk, who had not yet abandoned us, declared that he knew the very place that would please me. He led us along the edge of the escarpment to the extreme northern end of the city, and here showed us a grassy sward which was as lovely a situation as could be desired. The Orontes issued from the town below us amid gardens of flowering apricot trees. The golden evening light lay behind the minarets, and a great naura ground out a delicious song of the river. Chama is the present terminus of the French railway, and the seat of a mutaserif. The railway furnished me with a guide and companion in the shape of a Syrian station-master, a consequential half-baked little man, who had been educated in a missionary school and scorned to speak Arabic when he could stutter in French. He announced that his name was Monsieur Quebes, and his passion archaeology, and that he might the better prove himself to be in the van of modern thought, he attributed every antiquity in Chama to the Hittites, whether it were Byzantine, capital, or Arab in lace decoration. With the Mutasarif I came immediately into collision, by reason of his insisting on providing me with eight soldiers to guard my camp at night. A preposterous force, considering that two had been ample in every country district. So numerous a guard would have been an intolerable nuisance, for they would have talked all night and left the camp no peace, and I sent six of them away in spite of their protestations that they must obey superior orders. They reconciled the Mutasarif's commands with mine by spending the night in a ruined mosque a quarter of a mile away, where they were able to enjoy excellent repose unbroken by a sense of responsibility. For picturesqueness, Hama is not to be outdone by any town in Syria. 
The broad river with its water wheels is a constant element of beauty. The black and white striped towers of the mosques, an exquisite architectural feature, the narrow, partly vaulted streets are traps to hold unrivaled effects of sun and shadow, and the bazaars are not as yet disfigured by the iron roofs that have done so much to destroy the character of those at Damascus and at Homs. The big mosque in the center of town was once a Byzantine church. The doors and windows of the earlier building are easily traceable in the walls of the mosque. The lower part of the western minaret was probably the foundation of an older tower. The court is full of Byzantine shafts and capitals, and the beautiful little kibba is supported by eight Corinthian columns. On one of these, I noticed the Byzantine motif of the blown acanthus. When they grew weary of setting the leaves in a stereotyped uprightness, the stonecutters laid them lightly round the capital as though the fronds had drifted in a swirl of wind, and the effect is wonderfully graceful and fanciful. Cabessa and I climbed the Citadel Hill and found the area on the top to be enormous, but all the cut stones of the fortifications had been removed and built into the town below. My impression is that the isolation of the mound is not natural, but has been effected by cutting through the headland that juts out into the valley and so separating a part of it from the main ridge. If this be so, it must have been a great work of antiquity, for the cutting is both wide and deep. The chief interest of the day at Hama was supplied by the inhabitants. Four powerful Mohammedan families are reckoned as the aristocracy of the town, that of Khazamzadeh, Tafur, Kilani, and Bazari, of which last I have seen a member in Damascus. The combined income of each family is probably about 6,000 pounds a year, all derived from land and villages, there being little trade in Hama. Before the Ottoman government was established as firmly as it is now, these four families were the lords of Hama and the surrounding districts. They are still of considerable weight in the administration of the town, and the officials of the sultan let them go pretty much their own way, which is often devious. An ancient evil tale of the Khazam Zadeh is often told, and not denied, so far as I could learn by the family. There was an Hazam in pastures who, like King Ahab, desired his neighbor's vineyard, but the owner of it refused to sell. Thereupon the great man laid a plot. He caused one of his slaves to be slaughtered and had him cut into small pieces and buried not too deep in a corner of the coveted property. And after waiting a suitable time, he sent a message to the landlord saying, "'You have frequently invited me to drink coffee with you in your garden.' I will come. Make ready. The man was gratified by this condescension and prepared a feast. The day came, and with it the Khazam prince. The meal was spread under an arbor, but when the guest saw it, he declared that the spot selected did not suit him and led the way to the exact place where his slave had been buried. The host protested, saying that it was a mean corner close to the refuse heaps. But the Khazam replied that he was satisfied, and the entertainment began. Presently the guest raised his head and said, I perceive a curious smell. 
My lord, said the host, it is from the refuse heaps. No, said the other, there is something more. And summoning his servants, he bade them dug in the ground whereon they sat. The quartered body of the slave was revealed and recognized, and on an accusation of murder, the lord of the garden was seized and bound and his possessions taken from him by way of compensation. Nor, said Cabez, have such summary methods of injustice ceased. Quite recently, a quantity of onions were stolen from a shop belonging to Abdul Kadir el Khazam in the quarter immediately below my camp. The servants of Abdul Kadir came to the house of the sheikh of the quarter and demanded from him their master's property. And since he knew nothing of the matter and could not indicate who the thief might have been, they seized him and his son, wounding the son in the hand with a bullet, dragged them to the river bank, stripped them, beat them almost to death, and left them to get home as best they might. The incident was known all over Hama, but the government took no steps to punish Abdul Qadir. I went to the house of Khalid Beg Khazam, which is the most beautiful in the city, as beautiful as the famous Khazam house in Damascus. Khalid took me into rooms every inch of which was covered with an endless variety of Persian patterns in gesoduro and woodwork and mosaic. They opened upon a courtyard set round with an arcade of the best Arab workmanship, with a fountain in the center and pots of flowering ranunculus and narcissus in the corners. The women of the house of Khazam have an even greater reputation than the sumptuous walls that hold them. They are said to be the loveliest women in all of Hama. The Kilani I visited also in their charming house by the Orontes, the Tekya Kilaniya. It contains a mausoleum where three of their ancestors are buried and rooms overlooking the river filled with the pleasant grumbling of a Persian wheel. From thence I went to the Mut Sarif, who is an old man bent almost double and acquainted with no tongue but Turkish. I was considerably relieved to find that he bore no malice for my unruly conduct in the matter of the guard. As we walked home to lunch, we met an aged Afghan clad in white. Dervish Effendi was his name. He stopped the stationmaster to inquire who I was, and having learnt that I was English, he approached me with a grin and a salute, and said in Persian, The English and the Afghans are close friends. He was, in fact, as well informed as the British public, possibly better informed, of the interchange of visits and civilities between Kabul and Calcutta, and the moral of the episode which developed into a long and tiresome but most cordial visit from the dervish Effendi, is that the report of what happens in the remotest corner of Asia is known almost immediately to the furthest end, and that it is scarcely an exaggeration to say that if an English regiment is cut up on the borders of Afghanistan, the English tourist will be mocked at in the streets of Damascus. Islam is the bond that unites the western and central parts of the continent, as it is the electric current by which the transmission of sentiment is affected, and its potency is increased by the fact that there is little or no sense of territorial nationality to counterbalance it. 
a Turk or a Persian does not think or speak of my country in the way that an Englishman or a Frenchman thinks and speaks. His patriotism is confined to the town of which he is a native, or at most to the district in which that town lies. If you ask him to what nationality he belongs, he will reply, I am a man of Isfahan, or I am a man of Konya, as the case may be just as the Syrian would reply that he is a native of Damascus or Aleppo. I have already indicated that Syria is merely a geographical term corresponding to no national sentiment in the breasts of its inhabitants. Thus, to one listening to the talk of the bazaars, to the shopkeepers whose trade is intimately connected with local conditions in districts very far removed from their own counters, to the muleteers who carry so much more than their loads from city to city, all Asia seems to be linked together by fine chains of relationship, and every detail of the foreign policies of Europe, from China to where you please, to be weighed more or less accurately in the balance of public opinion. It is not the part of wanderers and hearers of gossip to draw conclusions. We can do no more than report— for any that may care to listen, what falls from the lips of those who sit round our campfires, and who ride with us across deserts and mountains, for their words are like straws on the flood of Asiatic politics, showing which way the stream is running. Personal experience has acquainted them with the stock in trade and the vocabulary of statecraft. They are familiar with war and negotiation and compromise and with long-nurtured and carefully concealed revenge. Whether they are discussing the results of a blood feud or the consequences of an international jealousy, their appreciations are often just and their guesses near the mark. For the moment... So far as my experience goes, the name of the English carries more weight than it has done for some time past. I noticed a very distinct difference between the general attitude towards us from that which I had observed with pain five years before, during the worst moments of the Boer War. The change of feeling is due, so far as I can judge from the conversations to which I listened, not so much to our victory in South Africa— as to Lord Cromer's brilliant administration in Egypt, Lord Curzon's policy on the Persian Gulf, and the alliance with the conquering Japanese. When I had at last got rid of the Afghan and was sitting alone on the fringe of grass that separated my tent from the city hundreds of feet below, a person of importance drove up to pay his respects. He was the Mufti Muhammad Effendi. He brought with him an intelligent man from Boussira el Harir in the Huron, who had travelled in Cyprus and had much to say and little good to say of our administration there. The Mufti was a man of the same type as the Qadi of Homs and the Sheikh Naksibendi, the sharp-eyed and sharp-witted Asiatic whose distinguished features are somewhat marred by an astuteness that amounts to cunning. He established himself upon the best of the camp chairs and remarked with satisfaction, I asked, can she speak Arabic? And when they answered, yes, verily I ordered my carriage and came. His talk was of Yemen, whither he had spent some years before to restore peace after the last Arab revolt. 
He spoke of the three days' journey over torrid desert from the coast, of the inland mountains covered with trees where there's always rain, summer and winter, of the enormous grapes that hang in the vineyards and the endless variety of fruits in the orchards, of the cities as big as Damascus, walled with great fortifications of mud a thousand years old. The Arabs, said he, were town-dwellers, not nomads, and they hated the Ottoman government as it is hated in few places. When the armies of the Sultan went out against them, they were accustomed to flee into the mountains, where they could hold out, thought the Mufti, for an indefinite number of years. But he was wrong. A few months were enough to give victory to the Sultan's troops. What with daring generalship and the power to endure desert marches and the rebellion failed, like many another, because the Arab tribes hate each other more vindictively than they hate the Osmanli. But after the fashion of repressed rebellions in Turkey, it has already broken out again. The Mufti told me also that in Hama, wherever they dug, they found ancient foundations, even below the river level. He was followed by my friend, the Turkish telegraph clerk, who rejoiced to see me so well encamped, and then by the Mutasarif, pursuing an anxious and tottering course from his carriage through my tent ropes. The latter lent me his Victoria so I might visit the parts of the town that lie on the eastern banks of the Orontes, and Cabez and I drove off with two outriders quite exceptionally free from rags. The eastern quarter, the Khadir, it is called, is essentially the Bedouin quarter. The city Arabic is replaced here by the rugged desert speech, and the bazaars are filled with Arabs who come in to buy coffee and tobacco and striped cloaks. It contains a beautiful little ruined mosque, said to be Seljuk, called El Hayat, the Mosque of Snakes, after the twisted columns of its windows. At the northern end of the courtyard is a chamber which holds the marble sarcophagus of Abdul Fida, Prince of Hama, the famous geographer. He died in 1331. His tomb is carved with a fine inscription recording the date according to the era of the Hijra. I gave a dinner party that night to the station master, the Syrian doctor Salum, and the Greek priest. We talked till late, a congenial if incongruous company. Salum had received his training in the American college at Beirut, from whence come all the medical practitioners, great and small, who are scattered up and down Syria. He was a Christian, though of a different brand from the priest, and Cabez represented yet another variety of doctrine. On the whole, said the priest, there was little anti-Christian feeling at Hama, but there was also little respect for his cloth. That very day, as he walked through the town, some Muslim women had thrown pebbles at him from a housetop, shouting, Dog of Christian priest! Cabez discussed the benefits conferred by the railway, a remarkably ill-managed concern, I fancy, and said that without doubt Hama had profited by it. Prices had gone up in the last two years. Meat that would have otherwise found no market was now sent down to Damascus and Beirut, and he himself, who, when he first came, had been able to buy a sheep for a franc, was now obliged to pay ten. The Mutasarifa Hama provided me with the best zaptia that I was to have on all my travels, Hazun Mahmud, a native of Hama, 
He was a tall, broad-shouldered man who had been in the Sultan's own guard at Constantinople and had made the pilgrimage three times, once as a pilgrim and twice as a soldier of the escort. He rode with me for ten days, and during that time told me more tales than would fill a volume, couched in a fine picturesque speech of which he was the master. He had traveled with a German archaeologist and knew the strange tastes of the Europeans in the matter of ruins and inscriptions. At Galat el Mudik, I said to him, If you would look upon a stone with a horse written upon it and his rider, by the light of God, I can show it to you. And he wondered much thereat and rewarded me with money. By God and Muhammad, the prophet of God, you too, O lady, shall gaze on it. Now this exploit of Mahmud's was more remarkable than would appear at first sight, for one of the great difficulties in searching for antiquities is that the people in out-of-the-way places do not recognize a sculpture when they see it. You are not surprised that they should fail to tell the difference between an inscription and the natural cracks and weather markings of the stone, but it takes you aback when... You ask whether there are stones with portraits of men and animals upon them, and your interlocutor says, Voila, we do not know what the picture of a man is like. Moreover, if you show him a bit of relief with figures well carved upon it, as often as not, he will have no idea what the carving represents. Mahmoud's most memorable traveling companion had been a Japanese who had been sent by his government, I afterwards learned, to study and report on the methods of building employed in the eastern parts of the Roman Empire to such researchers the Japanese had leisure to apply themselves in the thick of the war. Mahmoud's curiosity had evidently been very much excited by the little man whose fellows were snatching victory from the dreaded Russians. All day he rode, and all night he wrote in his books. He eats nothing but a piece of bread, and he drank tea. And when there came a matter for refusal, he said, for he could talk neither Arabic nor Turkish, No, no. And that is French, concluded Mahmoud. I remarked that it was not French, but English, which gave Mahmoud food for thought, for he added presently, we had never heard their name before the war, but by the face of the truth, the English knew of them. The Orontes makes a half-circle between Chama and Kalat es Sejar, and we cut across the cord of the Ark, riding over the same dull, cultivated plain that I had crossed on my way from Maziad. It was strewn with villages of mud-built, beehive-shaped huts. They are to be met with on the plains all the way to Aleppo, and are like no other villages save those that appear in illustrations to Central African travel books. As a man grows rich, he adds another beehive and yet another to his mansion, till he may have a dozen or more standing round a courtyard, some inhabited by himself and his family, some by his cattle, one forming his kitchen, and one his granary. We saw in the distance a village called al Khadeh which Mahmoud said was Christian and used to belong entirely to the Greek communion. The inhabitants lived happily together and prospered until they had the misfortune to be discovered by a missionary who distributed tracts and converted sorty sixty persons to the English church since when there has not been a moment's rest from brawling in al -Hirde.
as we rode, Mahmud told tales of the Ismailis and the Nosseris. Of the former, he said that Aga Khan's photograph was to be found in every house, but his woman that they worship, said he. Every female child born on the 27th of Rajab is set apart and held to be an incarnation of the divinity. She is called the Rosa. She does not work. Her hair and nails are never cut. Her family share in the respect that it is accorded to her, and every man in the village will wear a piece of her clothing or hair from her body folded in his turban. She is not permitted to marry. But what, said I, if she desired to marry? It would be impossible, replied Mahmud. No one would marry her, for is there any man that can marry God? The sect is known to have sacred books, but none have yet fallen into the hands of European scholars. Mahmud had seen and read one of them. It was all in praise of the Rosa, describing every part of her, with eulogy. The Ismailis read the Quran also, said he. Other strange matters he related which, like Herodotus, I do not see fit to repeat. The creed seems to spring from a dim tradition of Astarte worship, or from the oldest and most universal cult of all, the veneration of the Mother Goddess. But the accusations of indecency that had been brought against it are, I gather, unfounded. Of the Nosaris, Mahmud had much to tell, for he was well acquainted with the hills in which they live, having been for many years employed in collecting the capitation tax among the sect. They are infidels, said he, who do not read the Quran nor know the name of God. He related a curious tale, which I will repeat for what it is worth. Oh, lady, it happened in the winter that I was collecting the tax. Now in the month of Kaunun el Awa, December, the Nosaris hold a great feast that occurs at the same time as the Christian feast, Christmas. And the day before, when I was riding with two others in the hills, there fell a quantity of snow so that we could go no further, and we sought shelter at the first village in the house of the sheikh of the village. For there is always a sheikh of the village, O oh lady, and a sheikh of the faith, and people are divided into initiated and uninitiated. But the women know nothing of the secrets of the religion, for by God a woman cannot keep a secret. The sheikh greeted us with hospitality and lodged us, but next morning, when I woke, there was no man to be seen in the house, nothing but the women, and I cried, By God and Mohammed, the prophet of God, what hospitality is this? And are there no men to make the coffee but only women? And the women replied, We do not know what the men are doing, for they have gone to the house of the sheikh of the faith, and we are not allowed to enter. And then I arose, and went softly to the house and looked through the window. And by God, the initiated were sitting in the room, and in the center was the shake of the faith, and before him a bowl filled with wine and an empty jug, and the shake put questions to the jug in a low tone. And by the light of the truth, I heard the jug make answer in a voice that said, Bleh, bleh. And without doubt, O oh lady, this was magic. And while I looked, one raised his head and saw me, and they came out of the house and seized hold of me and would have beaten me, but I cried, Oh, Sheikh, I am your guest. And so the Sheikh of the Faith came forth and raised his hand 
and on the instant all those that had hold of me released me, and he fell at my feet, and kissed my hands and the hem of my coat, and said, O oh, Haji, if you will not tell what you have seen, I will give you ten majidas. And by the prophet of God, upon him be peace, I have never related it, O oh lady, until this day. After four hours' ride, we came to Calata Sejour. It stands on a long hog's back, broken in the middle by an artificial cutting and dropping by steep bluffs to the Orontes, which runs here in a narrow bed between walls of rock. The castle walls that crown the hill between the cutting and the river make a very splendid appearance from below. There is a small village of beehive huts at the bottom of the hill. The Seleucid town of Larissa must have lain on the grassy slopes to the north, judging from the number of dressed stones that are scattered there. I pitched my camp at the further end of the bridge in a grove of apricot trees, snowy with flower and a hum with bees. The grass was set thickly with anemones and scarlet ranunculus. The castle is the property of Sheikh Ahmed Sejari and has been held by his family for three hundred years. He and his sons live in a number of little modern houses built out of old stones in the middle of the fortifications. He owns a considerable amount of land and about one-third of the village, the rest being unequally divided between the Kalanis of Rama and the Samatye Arabs, a semi-nomadic tribe that dwells in houses during the winter. I had a letter of introduction to Sheikh Ahmed from Mustafa Barazi, and though Mahmoud was of opinion that I should not find him in the castle owing to a long-drawn trouble between the Sejari family and the Samatye, we climbed up to the gate and along a road that showed remains of Olting, like the entrance to Kalat el Husn, and so over masses of ruin till we came to the modern village where the Sejari sheikhs live. I inquired which was the house of Ahmed, and was directed to a big wooden door most forbiddingly shut. I knocked and waited, and Mahmoud knocked yet louder, and we waited again. At last, a very beautiful woman opened a shutter in the wall above and asked what we wanted. I said I had a letter from Mustafa to Ahmed and wished to see him. She replied, He is away. I said I would salute his son. You cannot see him, she returned. He is in prison at Ramah, charged with murder. And so she closed the shutter, leaving me to wonder how good manners would bid me act under these delicate conditions. At that moment, a girl came to the door and opened it a hand's breadth. I gave her the letter and my card, written in Arabic, murmured a few words of regret, and went away. Mahmoud now tried to explain the matter. It was one of those long stories that you hear in the East without beginning, without end, and without any indication as to which of the protagonists is in the right, but some inherent probability that all are in the wrong. The Samataye had stolen some of the Sejari cattle. The sons of Ahmed had gone down into the village and killed two of the Arabs. In the castle it was said that the Arabs had attacked them and that they had killed them in self-defense. The government 
always jealous of the semi-independence of ruling sheikhs, had seized the opportunity to strike down the Sejari whether they were at fault or no. Soldiers had been sent from Hama, one of Ahmed's sons had been put to death, two more were in prison, and all the cattle had been carried off. The rest of the Sejaris were ordered not to stir from the castle, nor indeed could they do so for the Samatayeh were at their gates already, and anxious to kill them if they stepped beyond the walls. They appealed to Hama for protection, and a guard of some ten soldiers was posted by the river, whether to preserve the lives of the sheikhs or to keep them the more closely imprisoned it was difficult to make out. These events dated from two years back, and for that time the Sejaris had remained prisoners at Hama and in their own castle and had been unable to superintend the cultivation of their fields, which were running in consequence to wreck and ruin. Moreover, there seemed to be no prospect of improvement in the situation. Later in the afternoon, a messenger arrived saying that Ahmed's brother, Abdul Qadir, would be pleased to receive me and would have come himself to welcome me if he could have left the castle. I went up without Mahmoud and heard the whole story again from the point of view of the sheikhs, which helped me to no conclusion, since it was, in most essentials, a different story from that which I had heard from Mahmoud. The only indisputable point, and it was probably not so irrelevant as it seems, was that the Sejari women were wonderfully beautiful. They wore dark blue Bedouin dress, but the blue claws hanging from their heads were fastened with heavy gold ornaments, like the plaques of a Mycenaean treasure, one behind either temple. Agreeable though their company proved to be, I was obliged to cut my visit short by reason of the number of fleas that shared the captivity of the family. Two of the younger women walked down with me through the ruins of the castle, but when we reached the great outer gate they stopped and looked at me, standing on the threshold. Allah, said one, you go forth to travel through the whole world, and we have never been to Hama. I saw them in the gateway when I turned again to wave them a farewell. Tall and straight they were, and full of supple grace, clothed in narrow blue robes, their brows bound with gold, their eyes following the road they may not tread. For whatever may happen to the sheikhs, nothing is more certain than that women as lovely as those two will remain imprisoned by their lords in Galat S. Sejar. We rode next day by cultivated plains to Galat El Mudik, a short stage of under four hours. Although there were several traces of ruined towns, one in particular I remember at a hamlet called Sheikh Hadid, where there was a mound that looked as if it might have been an acropolis, the journey would have been uninteresting but for Mahmoud's stories. His talk ran through the characteristics of the many races that make up the Turkish Empire, with most of which he was familiar, and when he came to the Circassians it appeared that he shared my aversion to them. "'O oh, lady,' said he, "'they do not know what it is to make return for kindness. "'The father sells his children, "'and the children would kill their own father "'if he had gold in his belt.' It happened once that I was riding from Tripoli to Homs, and near the Khan, you know the place, I met a Circassian walking alone. I said, Peace be upon you, why do you walk? For the Circassians never go afoot. He said, 
My horse has been stolen from me, and I walk in fear upon this road. I said, Come with me, and you shall go safely to Holmes. But I made him walk before my horse, for he was armed with a sword, and who knows what a Circassian will do if you cannot watch him. And after a little while we passed an old man working in the fields, and the Circassian ran out to him and spoke with him and drew his sword as though to kill him. And I called out, What has this old man done to you? And he replied, By God, I am hungry, and I ask him for food, and he said, I have none, wherefore I shall kill him. And then I said, Let him be. I will give you food. And I gave him the half of all I had, bread and sweetmeats and oranges. So we journeyed until we came to a stream. And I was thirsty, and I got off my mare, and holding her by the bridle, I stooped to drink. And I looked up suddenly and saw the Circassian with his foot in my stirrup on the other side of the mare, for he designed to mount her and ride away. And by God! I had been a father and a mother to him, therefore I struck him with my sword so that he fell to the ground. And I bound him and drove him to Hums and delivered him to the government. This is the manner of the Circassians. May God curse them. I asked him of the road to Mecca and of the hardships that pilgrims endure upon the way. By the face of God they suffer, said he. Ten marches from Ma'an to Medain Saleh, ten from there to Medina, and ten from Medina to Mecca, and the last ten are the worst, for the Sharif of Mecca and the Arab tribes plot together, and the Arabs rob the pilgrims and share the booty with the Sharif. Nor are the marches like the marches of gentlefolk when they travel, for sometimes there are fifteen hours between water and water, and sometimes twenty, and the last march into Mecca is thirty hours. Now the government pays the tribes to let the pilgrims through in peace. And when they know that the Hajj is approaching, they assemble upon the hills beside the road and cry out to the Amur o Hajj, Give us our dues, Abdur Rahman Pashal. And to each man he gives, according to his rights, to one money and to another a pipe and tobacco and to third a kerchief and to a fourth a cloak. Yet... It is not the pilgrims that suffer most, but those who keep forts that guard the water tanks along the road, and every fort is like a prison. It happened once that I was sent with the military escort, and my horse fell sick and could not move, and they left me at one of the forts between Mendain Saleh and Medina, till they should return. Six weeks or more I lived with the keeper of the fort, and we saw no one, and we ate and slept in the sun, and ate again and slept. For we could not ride out for fear of the Hawatait and the Beni Khateya, who were at war together. And the man had lived there ten years, and never gone a quarter of an hour from that spot, for he watched over the stores that fed the Hajj when it passed. By the prophet of God, said Mahmud, with a sweeping gesture of the hand from earth to sky, for ten years he had seen nothing but the earth and God now he had a little son, and the boy was deaf and dumb, but his eyes saw further than any man's, and he watched all day from the top of the tower. And one day he came running to his father and pointed with his hands, and the father knew he had seen a raiding party far off, and we hastened within and shut the doors. And the horsemen drew near five hundred of the Beni Ateye, 
And they watered their mares and demanded food, and we threw down bread to them, for we dared not open the doors. And while they ate, there came across the plain the raiders of the Hawatat, and they began to fight together by the castle wall. And they fought until the evening prayer, and those who lived rode away, leaving their dead to the number of thirty. And we remained all night with locked doors, and at dawn we went down and buried the dead. But it is better to live in a fortress by the Hajj road, he continued, than to serve as a soldier in Yemen, for there the soldiers receive no pay, and a food not enough on which to live, and the sun burns like a fire. In Yemen, if a man stood in the shade and saw a purse of gold lying in the sun, by God, he would not go out to pick it up, for the heat is like the fire of hell. Oh, lady, is it true that in Egypt the soldiers get their pay week by week and month by month? I replied that I believed it to be the case, such being the custom in the English army. As for us, said Mahmoud, our pay is always due to us for half a year, and often out of twelve months' pay we receive but six months. Well, I have never touched more than eight months' pay for a complete year. Once, he added, I was in Alexandria, mashallah, the fine city, houses it has as big as the palaces of kings, and all the roads have paved edges whereon the people walk, and there I saw a cabman who sued a lady for his fare, and the judge gave it to him. By the truth, the ways of judges are different with us, observed Mahmoud thoughtfully, and then with an abrupt transition he exclaimed, Look, oh lady, there is Abu Sa'ad. I looked and saw Abu Sa'ad walking in the plowed field with his white coat as spotless, as though he had not just alighted from a journey as long as one of Mahmoud's and his black sleeves folded neatly against his sides, and I made haste to welcome the father of good luck, for in Syria the first stork is like the first swallow with us. He cannot, however, any more than the swallow, make summer, and we rode that day into Kalat el-Mudik in drenching rain. Kalat el-Mudik is the apamia of the Seleucids, it was founded by Seleucus Nicator, that great town builder who had so many cities for his goddaughters, Seleucia in Pyaria, Seleucia on the Calicadmus, Seleucia in Babylonia, and more besides. Though it has been utterly destroyed by earthquakes, enough remains in ruin to prove its ancient splendor. The wide circuit of its walls, the number of its temples, and the magnificence of its column streets. You can trace the main thoroughfares from gate to gate by the heaped masses of colonnades and mark the stone bases of statues at the intersections of the ways. Here and there a massive portal opens into vacuity, the palace which it served having been raised to the ground, or an armed horseman decorates the funeral steel on which the living merits of his prototype are recorded. The Christians took up the story where the Seleucid kings had left it, and the ruins of a great church with a courtyard set round with columns lie on the edge of the main street. As I plunged into the soft spring rain through deep grass and flowers and clumps of asphodel, 
to the discomfiture of the grey owls that sat blinking on the heaps of stones, the history and the architecture of the town seemed an epitome of the marvellous fusion between Greece and Asia that came of Alexander's conquests. Here was a Greek king whose capital lay on the Tigris, founding a city on the Orontes and calling it after his Persian wife. What builders raised the colonnades that adorned this and all the Greek-tinged towns of Syria with classic forms, used in a spirit of oriental lavishness? What citizens walked between them, holding out hands to Athens and to Babylon? The only inhabited part of Kalat el-Mudik is the castle itself, which stands on the site of the Seleucid Acropolis, a hill overlooking the Orontes Valley in the Nosariye Mountains. It is mainly of Arab workmanship, though many hands have taken part in its construction, and Greek and Arabic inscriptions are built pell-mell into the walls. To the south of the castle there is a bit of classical building of which I have seen no explanation. It looks as if it might be part of the proscenium of the theatre, for the rising ground behind it is scooped away in the shape of an auditorium. A very little digging would be enough to show whether traces of seats lie under the grassy bank. In the valley there is a ruined mosque and a fine khan, half-ruined also. The sheikh of the castle gave me coffee and told me yet another version of the Sejari story, irreconcilable with either of the two first, whereat I congratulated myself on having early determined not to attempt to resolve that tangled problem. From the castle top, the valley of the Orontes seemed to be all under water. It was the great swamp of the Asi, said the sheikh, which dries in summer when the island villages, as I saw them now, resume their places as parts of the plain. Yes, certainly they were very unhealthy. Summer and winter they were fever-stricken, and most of the inhabitants died young. Lo, we belong to God, and unto him do we return." In winter and spring these short-lived folk follow the calling of fishermen, but when the swamp dried, they turn into husbandmen after a fashion of their own. They cut the reeds and sowed maize upon them, and set them alight, and the maize rose out of the ashes and grew, a phoenix-like method of agriculture. At Apamea, the excellent cakes I had bought in Damascus came to an end. It seemed a serious matter at the time, when the bill of fare was apt to be monotonous. Lunch was the least palatable of all our meals. Hard-boiled eggs and chunks of cold meat cease to tempt the appetite after they have been indulged in for a month or two. Gradually, I taught Michel to vary our diet with all the resources the country offered, olives and sheep's milk, cheese, salted pistachio, sugared apricots, and half a dozen other delicacies, including the Damascus cake. The native servant, accustomed to feeding cook's tourists on sardines and tinned beef, thinks it beneath the dignity of a European to eat such food, and you must go hunt the bazaars with him yourself and teach him what to buy, or you may pass through the richest country and starve on cold mutton. End of chapter 10